Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for you to make sure that you're ready to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to study your word. Father, every time we study your word, there's so many things to learn, so many things to investigate, and even though we've heard some things before, there are always times when we it sort of hits us fresh and we learn uh, new perspectives. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Romans 13, and especially as we think through what is involved in obedience to a government when that government drifts away from uh, biblical truth and establishment truth, and even when that government seeks to impose uh, pagan values and principles on its subjects, we must determine as believers how we are to respond based on these various uh, commands of Scripture. So, Father, help us to think clearly and precisely as we work through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 13. And tonight, as we look at verses 3 through 5 in Romans 13, we'll look at uh, comparison also with passages in First Peter. We'll see the intended role of government as well as dealing with some issues, I hope, by the end in terms of what happens when uh, government oversteps its bounds. One of the things I, I wanted to impress on everyone is the, the, the importance of the biblical command to be submissive to government. And submission it applies to every sphere of authority. We've talked about different spheres of authority. We, a couple of lessons back, we went through all the different passages where the uh, mandate to submit occurred, wives being submissive to their husbands, slaves being submissive to their masters, citizens being submissive to government, um, all of us being submissive to God and all believers being submissive to one another. Whatever applies in one area applies in another. And one reason I, I said that is if you're in a situation and you think about, uh, especially with some of the things that are coming up in terms of civil disobedience and civil issues, such as the we talked last week about the Clive and Bundy issue, but that's that's just getting headlines. There are a lot of more behind more important behind the scenes situations that are going on that we need to be aware of and that may affect you and and some of these are very subtle remember in Genesis 3 we're told that the serpent is the was the most subtle 
of all the creatures. And so there's a subtlety to these that that often you're, you're almost entrapped in the situation before you realize that you got sucked into a trap. So we have to learn to think very clearly, and we need to pray for a lot of discernment in different issues. And there are circumstances that affect high school kids. I think I think the younger you are, the more you come into some of these problems. If you're in school, for example, this last week, in fact, I was going to reference this. Just uh, two days ago, I heard on the news, and let me see if I still have this news item up here. Uh, maybe I lost it already, but this was local. Cypher School District. A young girl in the second grade was told she couldn't read her Bible. It was a reading period, and Pam immediately, we heard it in the morning, she's getting dressed and ready for school, came out and says, that's just dead wrong. The, if, if in a free reading period, which was what this was, a, a child can read whatever they want to as long as it's something they can read and something that may challenge them a little bit in terms of their reading reading skill. And so uh, this child, was t- second grader, was told she could not read her Bible that she had brought to school to read in, um, in, during this reading period. And immediately somebody alerted the Liberty Institute, which is one of several gr- conservative constitutional groups that are out there doing excellent work at defending uh, people's First Amendment rights, and they immediately had a discussion with the administration in the Cypher School District, and they were very responsive uh, to what the uh, Liberty Institute lawyers were, were informing them about. A lot of this happens because, especially in Texas, it's not because we have an anti-Christian culture in Texas, although that probably exists in some places, but a lot of teachers just aren't well informed as to uh, the role that religion can have in the classroom and in public school, and they uh, err on the side of, of excessive caution, and they just want to get everything out and not have anything there, and that is not what the law says. So you have to be educated and informed so that you can take a stand for your constitutional rights. And so uh, that was immediate. That situation in the Cypher School District was immediately corrected, but that is one example of how we legitimately deal with with assaults. By uh, there's Jeff. He, I told you he would materialize. I announced about the uh, uh, garage sale, and you weren't here, so I said he'll materialize eventually. So there he is. Uh, anyway. So that, that situation has been, has been resolved. Unfortunately, some of these situations don't, but according to the, um, the email I received from Liberty Institute, m- nearly all of these situations do get resolved in the favor of the person who wishes to, for example, there have been examples of uh, valedictorians who wanted to reference the Bible in their valedictorian speech. There have been uh, for example, there's a case that occurred, I think it was over in Jasper or somewhere in East Texas, where at the high school they, the, they had a Bible verse on a banner uh, that the, the students had been using, and they got challenged by one of these anti-God, anti-church, anti-religion organizations. 
And that got resolved in their favor. So our, and our part of it is still in court. So we have to understand what our rights are and what the avenues are that are available to us when we believe that we are uh, becoming a victim in these areas. It's not about physical armed resistance. It's something about the conservative mindset. You immediately want to jump to 1776. I think there's a lot of frustrated revolutionary soldiers around and masquerading as, as conservatives today. But as I pointed out last time, in terms of legal options, there's a lot, we've got a long way to go between where we are and where some people think we are. Uh, in some cases, like the Clive and Bundy situation I talked a little bit about last week, the big problem there was the overreaching federal power of the federal government. As I pointed out, Bundy is taking a very difficult legal position, which I don't think is a cause that, that should be generating the response. But the fact that the federal government came in with snipers and with special forces and all of these other tactical units and everything was an totally uh, <clears throat> unacceptable and, and totally un, unprovoked uh, response to this situation, and they were wrong. But legally, the federal government probably has the stronger case. Now, I'll make comments some more on that. That's a moving target, as I pointed out last time. When you're sitting in the, on top of a historically developing situation, it's very difficult to do good analysis because you're not always sure you have all the facts. And that's definitely a moving target. There have been other things revealed since last week and so on. But if you're going to go and make a case against uh, federal uh, or unacceptable or illegal federal incursion on state power, you need to make sure that the, that the case you're dealing with is right and, and you've got legal strength on your side. For example, you'll be reading about it, and I've got to read a lot more about it, but there's a situation with land on the Texas-Oklahoma border. This is a very different case than what's been going on in Nevada. And both Governor Perry and um, our Attorney General Greg Abbott are on top of the situation and giving us an example of what the Nevada state government and the county sheriff in, in Clark County, uh, Nevada, should have been doing in terms of preventing or protecting their, their citizens from an overreaching federal government. So anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that this evening. We need to get into the Word and continue to understand what the Scriptures teach. Now, one of the problems that we have in terms of where some evangelical teaching is today is to take passages such as Romans 13, 1 through 7, as if there are no exceptions, that the passages that in the Scripture that talk about submission whether it's submission to government or submission in the home, that, th that there are no exceptions. And the scriptures will see are, the scriptures are filled with exceptions. But as I started to say this earlier, one thing you should think about, if you're in a situation where you think the federal government is mandating something and you shouldn't, you say, I don't think that's right. I don't want to obey that. Try to, try to, um, draw a parallel within the home. Try to draw a parallel between what's going on there and within the home because the idea of, of children submitting to parents 
If you're a parent and you want your child to obey you, even if you're wrong. See, Scripture says there's two kinds of ways we talk about wrong. I can be foolish or unwise, and I can ask my children to do something that is foolish or unwise. That's not unbiblical, immoral, or contradictory to Scripture. Foolish is not necessarily sinful, immoral, or violation of Scripture. It's foolish. It's not wise. There's a difference. And it may not be the best thing to do, but it's not telling them or uh, expecting them to do something that violates what the Word of God says. And so we can think about drawing a parallel between times when we as a parent may not be making the best decision, may not be making taking the wisest course of action, but we expect the family to obey and follow along. And the family should obey and follow along because there aren't those kinds of exceptions in the Scripture that the authority is not making the best decision, so you really don't have to listen to them. You know, find another option. Those those avenues aren't open to us. And so as we look at how the Scripture talks about obedience in one arena of authority, try to draw a parallel to another arena of authority, and that maybe that will help you with this issue of submission. Okay, as we look at the passage, the first two verses lay out the point. In fact, verse um, verse 5 comes back to repeat the principle of verse 1. The basic command is to let every soul or every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is picked up in verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject. There's not an option there in terms of submission to authority. And I find that that, that the way you understand if you're submissive is if the person in authority, teacher, commanding officer, husband, parent, is asking you to do something you really don't want to do, it's not illegal, it's not immoral, it's not unbiblical, it's just something you think is silly or stupid or you just don't want to do, and you fight it, you're not submissive. That's when we real, when we learn if we're submissive is when the person in authority is asking us to do something we don't want to do and we fight it. That's when we discover whether we're... It's real easy to be submissive when people are asking us to do things we don't mind doing. It's when they're asking us to do something that we really don't want to do or we really don't think is in our best interest that, that we find out whether we're really submissive or not. So submission isn't obey the authority because you think they're right or you agree with them or it's comfortable for you or you like what they're asking you to do. Those qualifications aren't there. Why would somebody tell you, be submissive when people are telling you to do things you want to do? You don't need to hear that. That's That's an irrelevant command. Submission is only relevant if the authority is asking you to do something you really don't want to do, like pay taxes. I thought I'd get a chuckle or two out of that. Okay, now as we look at this, the verses I want to focus on tonight, verses 3 through 5, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil." Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now, these three verses, are, or two of them, verses 3 and 4, are really a parenthesis in the flow of Paul's thought. 
He's the main idea is stated, in, as I said, in verse 1 and repeated in verse 5, and in between you have some general principles express, expressing uh, the, the, under the uh, ideal situation. But we'll get to that in just a minute. So in the first command, we're told to be subject to governing authorities because, and three times that word is used, for there's no authority from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, immediately, what comes to a lot of people's mind is, does, does that mean that an unjust ruler is appointed by God? Does that mean that Nero was appointed by God? Well, yes, because that's, you know, Paul is writing under, under the time of uh, when Nero was emperor in Rome. Was Adolf Hitler an authority appointed by God? Yes, he was. Was a Stalin appointed by God? Yes, he was. There's no exception here. Now, some people want to bring their rational philosophy into it, but those are the people who don't accept the Scripture as their absolute authority. Because I'm going to give you examples of Scripture where God appointed leaders who were not good and righteous and wonderful. No one can rule, as, as Romans 13.1 says, there's no authority, even Pilate. I pointed that out from a passage from John last week in John 19 that, that uh, when Jesus is talking to Pilate, and Jesus pointed out that Pilate's authority came from God, the authority to violate the law and execute an innocent man. That authority, and that came from God that there's no authority that exists other than God. Habakkuk in the Old Testament had this problem. I'm not, we don't have to turn to Habakkuk. I'll show you in just a minute. But the situation with Habakkuk is that Habakkuk is a little bit self-righteous. He's a prophet, and he's really concerned about the fact that the, the, is, the, the Judahites in the southern kingdom are, are, are really unrighteous. They're idolatrous. They're unfaithful to God. They are disobedient to the law. They are immoral. They're unethical. They're self-centered. And he just says, God, why in the world don't you bring a punishment on these people? They are breaking the law every day. And yet it seems like you're just sitting up there in heaven and you're just letting them get away with it year after year after year. God, bring a punishment. Judge these people. And in the first chapter, God says, yes, I am going to judge them. And in Habakkuk 1, uh, 6 to 11, he gives Habakkuk a little lesson on how God raises up rulers that aren't necessarily righteous and kind and good. And in verse 6, we read God saying, For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, a pagan king that was uh, not righteous at all, a pagan king that was going to come in and slaughter hundreds of thousands of Jews and take many who survived back as captives to Babylon. And God told, uh, told this to Habakkuk and said, I'm going to take care of the situation. I've raised up the Chaldeans to do it. And, and basically Habakkuk's reaction is going to be is, God, how can you do that? They're worse than the Jews are. How in the world can a just God raise up such an unholy people and use an unholy instrument to accomplish his purposes? And God says, because I'm sovereign, I can do that. And so sometimes unjust rulers 
are put in place by God in order to bring discipline upon their subjects because of their subjects' uh, unfaithfulness to God, because of their subjects' paganism, and because of their, their, their subjects' immorality. And so God raises up ungodly rulers and puts them in place for certain reasons. Now look at the description that we have of the Chaldeans in verse in Habakkuk 1, 6 through 11. I just edited it, so instead of putting everything up there, they're called a bitter and hasty nation. They're angry. They're, they don't have, they, they don't have righteous motivation. They're terrible and dreadful. They're more fierce than the evening wolves. They all come for violence. He commits offense and he ascribes his, the power to his own God. He's an idolater. He's terrible. Yet God raised up Nebuchadnezzar for this very purpose. Now we see the same kind of situation related to Nebuchadnezzar a little bit later on in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, God is going to bring judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who has, is ruling one of the greatest empires of, of the ancient world, has become excessively self-absorbed and arrogant. He has, in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, he built an enormous idol and mandating that everybody in the kingdom worship him, and that threatened the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we know the story of the fiery furnace. So in Daniel chapter 4, God warns Nebuchadnezzar that he's going to judge him and uh, judge him for his arrogance and teach him a lesson in humility. And in Daniel 4.17, as Daniel is giving the interpretation of the dream, he says that this decision is by decree of the watchers. That's a reference to angels who are assigned to different empires and different territories. And the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the most high, that's God, rules in the kingdom of men. God rules over the affairs of mankind. He raises up rulers and he destroys rulers. And you may not like the rulers that he's raising up over you at any given point in time, but then we're not privy to all the reasons why. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, including Nebuchadnezzar, and sets over it the lowest of men. That word's the humblest of men. So God is in control of who who rules. So Romans 13.1, we're to submit to the governing authorities, for he, that is the governing authority, is God's minister. Now, one of the points I keep reiterating, because there's a tendency in some of the analysis of this chapter today to try to make this, the authorities here relate to an abstract authority like the Constitution. But it's not just talking about abstract authorities, it's talking about the people who are holding the office, the various authority offices. So in verse 4, he, that is the governing per- the person in that office, is God's minister. Now, I'm just going to say, fill in the blank. Blank, you can put whatever politician you want in that line. He, That politician, the president, the vice president, put his name in there. He is God's minister over you. Don't squirm. 
That's what he's, that's what Paul is saying. And this is the inerrant word of God. So we, we, we have to understand what he's talking about. God has a reason. Now, when verse two is stated that when we resist authority, we're resisting the ordinance of God. This is one of the problems is that when we resist the authority that God has established in any way, we are resisting God. But remember, when I say in any way, I don't mean that in an exclusive sense because there are legitimate reasons that we will look at for, for genuine civil disobedience, disobedience to any authority. And we're going to look at some of the biblical examples of that uh, in just, just a minute. But the emphasis of Scripture is on submission. It's not on the exceptions. But there are exceptions, as we'll see in just a little bit. So what we learn from this is that God has established government. Now, I have heard some people in conversation make unguarded statements. I don't think they really understand what they're saying or they're not talking too precisely, but they've made statements like government is evil. Government, in in the sentence government is evil, government is an abstract entity. Government as an abstract entity is not evil. Because in that sentence, what you're saying is all government is evil. God governs the universe. That government is not evil. So government in principle cannot be evil, first of all, in terms of divine government, and secondly, because God instituted government in human history as part of what we refer to as the divine institutions. Now, a divine, the divine institutions are important to understand because God established these as universal uh, principles or universal social laws within the framework of his creation. They were designed for the purpose of the protection and the preservation and the stability of the human race. And three of these were instituted before there was ever sin. So the first three are not related to controlling evil. They are related to producing prosperity and happiness and stability. And we've gone through these many times before. Uh, The first is individual responsibility. The second is marriage. And the third is family. All of these were instituted, even though there wasn't family, that doesn't mean it wasn't instituted prior to uh, the first conception and birth. It's instituted in the command to be fruitful and multiply that God stated back in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And this was uh, uh, designed for God's plan was for the human race to perpetuate itself before the fall. Now, this is one of the reasons I don't think that a lot of time went by before the fall occurred. I don't think a lot of time went by before before Satan fell. And the only reason people want to insert a lot of time is they bought into some sort of evolutionary lie to begin with that there had to be long periods of time at the beginning. So you have individual responsibility, marriage, and family. Besides, the hermeneutical blunder that you have to accept if you think that when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, that that really meant you can't do this until after you sin. God says the same thing to the animals. And you don't put an, nobody puts an asterisk there. You have to treat them the same thing. If God said be fruitful and multiply, that meant get started. That's the impact of the grammar. It doesn't mean, well, you can't really do it. 
Now, God may have not, it may not have been in his permissive will to allow it to fructify, but that doesn't mean the command wasn't supposed to go into effect immediately. There are a lot of us who would like to do certain things that God commanded. We would like to give a lot of money to support certain uh, ministries, but God has not given us permission by uh, giving us the wealth needed in order to do that. But that doesn't mean that the command is irrelevant or isn't to be uh, to be applied if necessary. Just a lesson in total irrational logic to think that Adam and Eve were told to do something that God really said, well, well, you're not really supposed to do it when I said to do it. You're supposed to wait till after you sin. So then you have two more divine institutions that are set up after the fall. The first three are designed to promote productivity and advance civilization, and the last two are designed to restrain evil. Now, the fourth one is the one we're talking about, government. It's the establishment of judicial authority. Somebody once asked me, said, well, how can you have government if you don't have nations? Easy. You have city government, you have county government, you have state government, there are all sorts of small social entities that have some form of government. And so that doesn't necessitate uh, nations or nationalism. So the fourth divine institution was established by the covenant with Noah, where judicial authority to take the life of a human being who had committed murder was delegated to the human race. And it's the principle that if the most significant or serious responsibility is, is delegated, then all other judicial lesser judicial responsibilities are also, are also delegated. And that God is responsible, or God is the one who oversees and is the authority to whom these uh, national leaders are responsible. This is seen in Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now, the word there translated gods is the word Elohim. And Elohim was often, as a term, was often used to apply to rulers as it is in this passage. He's not, obviously God is not talking about other gods because there's only one God. The term is used again down in verse, uh, verse 80, in 82-6. Uh, I said, you are gods addressing these leaders. Why? Because God has delegated this judicial responsibility that, that was previously his alone, he's delegated that to human magistrates or human leaders. So in this passage, we see that God is the one who uh, holds uh, the, the judges, the political leaders, the rulers accountable. In verse 1, he judges among the gods. And we see the criteria listed in verses 2 down through 5, talking about how they, they are to judge. They're accused of uh, judging unjustly, so a judge should judge justly. He should not sow partiality to the wicked. He should defend the poor and the fatherless, and he should do justice to the afflicted and the needy. He should not allow people to take advantage because they have power and wealth of those who don't. 
justice should be purely objective and should apply equally to those who have wealth and those who do not, those who are uh, in need as well as those who have uh, great possessions. In Romans 13.3, we're told that the rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Now, here Paul is explaining the principle or what the, the intended role of the ruler. The ruler is to, to not be a terror to good works, but a ruler is to be a terror to evil. He is to bring uh, order into society so that those who seek to do evil uh, will not go unpunished. So the rulers are to be a terror to evil. And then he asks the question, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good. How many times have we all, now there may be somebody here who's so perfect, but most of us have probably gone through, down the highway doing 80 in a 65 or a 60 or doing 90 in a 70, something like that. And what are we doing? We are watching everywhere to make sure there's not a, a speed trap somewhere where we're going to get caught. But if we were going the speed limit, or in Texas, what we call the Texas 10, as long as we're not going more than 10 miles over the speed limit, we're, we're given a little grace so that if we're going, you know, reasonably close to the speed limit. We just don't think about it. You're not worried about it. But if you're going somewhere in a hurry and you know you're going through an area where uh, there might be a speed trap, uh, you're going to be more alert. If you're doing the right thing, then uh, you don't have to be afraid. And if you have a good record, then you will have praise from the same. A couple of years ago, true confession, I was driving up to uh, Abilene. I usually go up about this time of year. I'll be going up in a couple of weeks to go fishing, hang out with an old uh, uh, buddy of mine from college, ROTC in college, and, and we usually hunt or fish or shoot or whatever. We just have a great time for a couple of days. And I take off after church on Sunday, and I drive up there, and I got pulled over for doing, I don't know, 80-something in a 75 zone, 82 or 83. That was a little bit. Going a little, I wasn't watching it. So this police officer pulled me over, highway patrol pulled me over, and came up on the right side of the car. And this was back when you you still had to, if you had a CHL, you still had to inform the officer if you had a weapon in the car. And uh, it's almost like that joke that goes around. He came up and and I put my hands on the steering wheel, and he said. uh, he said, where, where, where are you going? Uh, I, I said, well, I want to let you know I have a CHL and I have a weapon in the car. And he said, uh, what do you have? I said, well, I've got a 9mm in the glove compartment. He said, okay. And he said, do you have anything else? I said, yeah, I've got a 40 S&W in the console. He said, well, do you have anything else? I said, yeah, i got an AR in the trunk. <laughs> said, well, do you have anything else? I said, yeah, I think there's a 45 in the back seat. <laughs> so... After that, he said, well, I figured that. You've got an NRA cap on, and you've got uh, it, you, you know, your, your bumper stickers or whatever kind of indicated that, so that's no big problem. Give me your driver's license and everything. So he went to check, and he came back. So well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm a pastor. I learned that a long time ago to play the pastor card. I said, I'm a pastor. I just, you know, this is my weekend. I'm going up to visit. I played the, uh, the military card. 
uh, visiting a buddy of mine from ROTC in college, and we're just going to go hunt and fish or whatever. He said, well, you've got a clean record. I don't want to mess it up, so you just slow it down a little bit and have a great time. See, if you have a clean record, then you will have praise from the authority. So that worked out very, very well, and I breathed a sigh of relief and drove on just a little bit slower. So verse 4 says he is God's minister to you for good. It is the authority, whether it's the local gendarme, the local police agency, sheriff's department, or whether it is the federal government, that's purpose is to keep order and peace so that we can go about our business and that we can have success and prosperity, and we can do well in life's endeavors. This is one of the reasons Paul says that we are to pray for our our government and rulers is so that we can have peace uh, to go about the proclamation of the gospel and teaching God's word without government interference. So in verse 4, we're told that he, that is the authority, whichever individual it is in whatever sphere it is, is God's minister to you for good. That is their purpose. But he says, if you do evil, that means if you break the law, if you're doing that which is illegal, then you should be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, this is a very important phrase that that uh, Paul uses here, because bearing the sword in vain indicates the power of life or death. It indicates that the government has the right to take life under certain circumstances. And so this is a veiled reference to the right of capital punishment that every government uh, should have and should utilize. So once again, we see that not only does the Old Testament teach about capital punishment, but it is alluded to uh, positively in the New Testament. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now that word for avenger is the same one we saw back in 1219, and it has to do with executing justice. It's not talking about personal vindictiveness. It is to bring about a righteous judgment and enact the sentence. So the um, the authority is an avenger to execute wrath. And here's a term that, again, I keep pointing this out, doesn't have an emotive context. It has a judicial context, and wrath is a term, it's a use of a hyperbole in order to express the seriousness or the extremity of the judgment. And so he brings wrath on those who practice evil. Now, as we look at this, Back in verse 3 talked about, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? It's a singular noun. That singular noun means it's not no, it's no longer talking about authorities in an abstract sense. It's talking about the individuals who hold that office. That's affirmed by the first uh, phrase in verse 4, he is God's minister. It's talking about the individual in that office that he has been appointed to that individually by God. Now, the scriptures mention various authorities using that same word uh, to describe their authority. It's used of Israel's high priest in uh, Acts 23.5. It's used, and that's in relation to, to Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. 
of those in charge of the synagogue in passages like Matthew 9, 18, and 23 and Luke 8, 41. It's used to describe the members of the Sanhedrin. Remember, these were people who brought unjust charges against Jesus Christ so that he would be uh, executed. It's used of a judge in Luke 12:58. It's used of pagan officials in Acts 16:19. So even those who are uh, who are not Christian still have delegated authority from God. Also, it's a term used of demons in terms of their hierarchy of authority. In, pa- in several gospel passages like Matthew uh, 9:34, 12:24, Mark 3:22, and Luke 11:15. Now, in a parallel passage, uh, echoing the same language and the same thoughts that Paul has here in, Revel- in uh, Romans 13, 3 and 4, we have the passage in 1 Peter 2, 13 for, uh, through 16. Using the same word, hupotasso, Peter says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Using the same phraseology, Paul had said in uh, Romans 13.2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. So Paul calls it the ordinance of God, whereas Peter referred to this as the ordinance of man. Now, why do we submit to the ordinance of man? We do it for the Lord's sake. It may not feel good for us. It may not be the right thing to do, we think, in our opinion. But we submit for the Lord's sake. That's the same sort of argument that, or the same rationale that Paul expresses when he talks about women, wives submitting to your husbands as unto the Lord, and that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He always brings in this relationship to God as a fundamental reason for why we are to, to relate to others the way we do. So we are to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, whether it applies to the upper level of authority within a country, or to governors, that's a second tier of a lower level of authority, a lesser magistrate. I'm introducing some terminology here we'll come back to next time. The upper magistrate, is a, that's a somewhat antiquated term, but you'll find it in some important literature the magistrate refers to the ruler, whether it is in the courtroom or whether it is in the executive branch. So you have the uh, higher magistrate, the king, or the lower magistrate, the governor, and those who are sent by him, that is, those who have delegated responsibility from the governor. And that could be, in, in our society, that would be not only state government, but also county and city government. Uh, they're sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. That's their divinely authorized purpose, is to restrain evil and to praise those who are doing good. Peter then says in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, doing good is being subordinate to the authorities over you, not being rebellious, not being uh, rabble-rousers or troublemakers. Now there's a place and a and a and a way to do that. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, and unfortunately, um, too often you get people who, who come up with the wrong way to accomplish their goal. 
when I, I think I've mentioned this before, but when I was in Kiev, I was uh, somewhat skeptical of what was happening down in Maidan and Independence Square when I first got there. But as I learned more, I realized that uh, some of the leaders of those who were demonstrating were really trying to do right, not create property damage. Some some took place. But the most outstanding example I saw was when the police were forced to evacuate a, a cultural building that when the demonstrators went in, they took pictures of how the police had just trashed the place. And the demonstrators made a contract with the owners of the building to pay rent and to pay utilities while they occupied the building. They were showing that they were trying to be law-abiding citizens and they weren't just being uh, rebellious troublemakers for their own uh, for their own ends. So this 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 uh, in fact the I've I've learned that the acting president now of Ukraine is an evangelical Christian. I don't know anything more than that. That's a broad term, but that is certainly an interesting uh, fact to be aware of. So he's trying to do the right thing. Has some biblical background at least. Anyway, verse 15 says, This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Okay, now in 1 Peter 2, 18, we have a passage that talks about some of the extent of obedience that we need to apply to governing authorities. And 1 Peter 2, 18, the issue is related to servants and masters. Servants, be submissive to your masters. When they do good, listen to this, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle. In other words, not only because you like them or they're good to you or they're nice to you, but also to the harsh, also to the harsh. And the word there for the harsh is the Greek word scolios, where we get the medical term scoliosis for someone who has a medical condition where their their spine is uh, is crooked or bent. And so we could translate that also to those who are crooked or bent, those who are harsh, those who are dealing with you in an unjust manner. You think you're being mistreated, you're being maltreated, they're being hard on you. Uh, Peter is saying, don't just be, be obedient to the ones who are nice. So this is important to understand that when, when submission is mandated by Scripture, there's not a qualification other than when it comes to those who are telling you to disobey Scripture. Have a parallel in 1 Peter 3.1, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the Word, they're unbelievers, they're disobedient to the Word, Notice it doesn't say there, it doesn't talk about them telling, when they're telling you to be disobedient to the word. They just are disobedient to the word. They're unbelievers, they're immoral, amoral, unethical, whatever. Just because they are a loser doesn't give you justification to be disobedient to them. There are reasons to perhaps not follow their authority, but that's not what's being covered here that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by their conduct of their wives. It doesn't say they will be won by the conduct of their wives. They might be won by the conduct of their wives. If their wife is a rebellious, cantankerous, resistant, whatever, 
I'll tell you what, you're not going to win it. But if you're submissive in the sense that you go along, that doesn't mean you're a doormat. Submission doesn't mean you're a doormat. Every American woman, if you heard doormat, you've been brainwashed by, by the ERA, by the, by the feminist movement in America. 30 years of being a pastor, when women hear the word submissive, they hear, I'm supposed to be a doormat. The only reason you think that in, in the post-World War II generation is because you had the feminist movement tell you that that's what that meant. But biblically, that doesn't mean that. The, 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 the most submissive man in the Bible is, is Moses. Was Moses a doormat? Not at all. So just get get that. You know, where do, we started this section in Romans, not to be conformed to the world. Well, if you think being submissive is being a doormat, you have let the world dictate the meaning of that term to you, and that is not what the biblical concept talks about. That doesn't mean to be a weak, wimpy, milk toast woman. It doesn't. Not at all. It doesn't mean to be a weak, wimpy, milquetoast man. It doesn't mean to let people run over you. It's not so much, for a lot of people, it's not so much what they're doing, it's how they're doing it. They don't know how to, how to be assertive or how to stand up for themselves without being nasty, arrogant, uh, angry, uh, self-centered. They don't know how to do that. You have to learn how to do that and how to, how to be firm and strong, but Submissive at the same time. Those are not contradictory terms. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the perfect example. He's submissive but to the to the unethical treatment he received before he went to the cross. But he never reacts. There's no anger. There's no sense of personal retribution or bitterness uh, that that come out of his mouth. He's certainly not a doormat. So we have to rethink how we understand these terms. So, in fact, I think that a very strong woman who understands biblically the concept can be an incredible testimony to her husband. She's not going to let the guy roll over her, but then she's not going to be rebellious either. Now, scriptures talk about the fact that God uses and establishes unjust rulers a lot of the time. That's one of the objections you often hear when you teach about God establishes the authorities. Well, that guy's not good. He's unjust. He's a liberal. He's a Marxist. He's not really a constitutionalist. Was he duly elected? Yes. Was there fraud in the election? Yes. Doesn't matter. Nobody called him on it. It's, a, it's been legalized. Okay? Well, I don't like it. So? There are a lot of things. This is a devil's world. There are a lot of things that we don't like. We've got to grow up and get over it. God uses unjust rulers. God raised up Assyria, and Isaiah called Assyria the rod of God's anger. The Assyrians were arguably worse than the Nazis. They loved to torture their enemies. They got they they gained great pleasure to see how long they could torture an enemy before they would die, try to keep them alive as long. They were, they were comparable to the Comanche Indians on the, on the high plains. They, they, they loved that. Many of the Native American, the American Indian cultures, uh, loved, uh, they, they were so influenced by, by the demonic 
that uh, it's just it's just unbelievable. That's one of the reasons I think God God brought judgment. That's not politically correct. But if you go back and you study their cultures, they were immersed in demonism, in all kinds of occult things and evil things. But anyway, the Assyrians were like that. But God raised up that evil power, that evil empire, in order to execute his righteous judgment on the northern kingdom. Later on, Isaiah called Cyrus his anointed. Now, some people think that Cyrus, because of that, Cyrus must have been a believer. I don't think so. The word anointed simply means appointed to a task. God appointed Cyrus to a task. To uh, uh, Cyrus, when he was uh, became the emperor of the Persian Empire, he uh, issued a decree to allow the Jews to return to their native homelands. But that fit his policy. His policy was to send these these people who had been resettled under the Babylonians to send them back to their native territory to rebuild the temples for their gods, not just in Jerusalem, but many other peoples, so that their gods could pray to his God to be merciful to Cyrus. So he's not a believer, but God appointed him to that task to be used by God to restore the Jewish people back to uh, their land, which he did in 538, sending the first group back under under Zerubbabel to reestablish their presence in the land that God had given them. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 25, 9, said that Nebuchadnezzar, evil, wicked Nebuchadnezzar that, that just astounded Habakkuk, was God's servant. So all of this indicates that my computer is telling me, well, you've talked enough. There we go. Okay. So a couple of interesting quotes about how to handle magistrates. This is from Matthew Henry. I thought this was interesting because Matthew Henry is one generation removed from the Puritans and the Presbyterians that beheaded Charles I. He's in the generation, I believe. He was young, but he may have been a teenager when the Glorious Revolution took place after Cromwell's protectorate ended and uh, James I, and then, I mean, James II, rather, was installed as king, and then all of a sudden everybody, all the um, lords and earls recognized that, oops, we put this Roman Catholic in there and he's worse than we thought. Let's figure out a way to get rid of him. And they had what was called the Glorious Revolution and brought in William of Orange. So there's a lot of thought went into... Uh, the relationship of the people to the king by Christian theologians and lawyers during the middle part of the 17th century, the 1600s. And Matthew Henry's a Presbyterian pastor, and he writes in regard to Romans uh, 13, in the administration of public justice, the determining of quarrels, the protecting of the innocent, the righting of the wrong, the punishing of offenders, and the pres- uh, preserving of national peace and order, that every man may not do what is right in his own eyes. That's the theme of judges. You can't do what's right in your eyes. You have to submit to governing authorities. In these things, it is that magistrates act as God's ministers. And he certainly had... Uh, had experience with unjust magistrates. As the killing of an inferior magistrate while he is doing his duty is accounted treason against the prince. So the prince sends out some low-level bureaucrat to take up taxes. You don't like it and kill him. That's considered an act of treason against the king. 
he uses that analogy. He says, so the resisting of any magistrate in the discharge of these duties of their place is the resisting of an ordinance of God. Very clear statement. That the magistrate is God's minister to you for good, and so we are to be in obedience to him. Now, the last verse I'm looking at is verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. I'm going to remember this because often I hear people try to argue that the term wrath of God is a term that indicates that God has emotion. This is a great use of the term wrath in a judicial context in Romans where emotion is not present. You don't want an emotional judge. You want a judge who is going to execute the law. And the term wrath is often used as a hyperbolic expression. That means an exaggeration to show that the full extent of the law is being applied. The, The fullest extent of the penalty is being applied. And so there are two motivations given here for why we want to be obedient. First of all, because we don't want to feel the full effects of the courtroom. We don't want to feel, we don't want to feel the legal punishment brought against us. But also for conscience sake. As, as believers, we have a conscience that based on scripture tells us what is right or wrong. We don't want to offend that conscience. Once you start offending your conscience, James says, then you set up a precedent where even if your conscience is wrong, you set up a precedent for violating your conscience. You you begin to train yourself to rationalize disobedience to your set of norms and standards. And James warns that that sets a precedent that when your conscience is right, you've already set a habit pattern of rationalizing disobedience. So you, you don't want to violate your conscience. And so your conscience tells you that it's right to obey the, the, the word and right to obey the authority. And so for those two reasons, we want to obey Scripture. Now I'm going to stop here. I thought I would get to the point where we could talk about well, what happens when the government is wrong. What happens when the government is telling us to do things that are truly wrong, that violate Scripture and violates God's expressed will. And we'll come back to look at that next time and then we'll also bring in some other some other important features of that that have been applied down through uh, down through church history. Uh, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to understand these passages. It's important for us to understand this principle of authority. For it was this very issue that led to the first sin in the universe: the disobedience of Lucifer when he disobeyed your authority, and then that has been playing itself out again and again down through human history, that this issue is perhaps one of the two or three most foundational issues in all of Scripture. And we need to understand what it truly means to be submissive to authority. And there are so many places where this this comparison is made that if we do not understand how to submit to one authority, that somehow that speaks to our inability to submit to your authority. So help us to understand, to see areas in our own lives where this need to be applied, that we may truly glorify you through our obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.